You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, produced by University FM. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are, enjoy today's episode. And here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here today with Jed Purdy, who is a professor of law at Duke University and also the author of a bunch of books. I think the most recent book is this one. It's called Two Cheers for Politics, Why Democracy is Flawed, Frightening, and Our Best Hope. I've got a couple other books here. This one called After Nature, Politics for the Anthropocene. I never know how to pronounce that. Anthropocene? Anthropocene? There are three or four different ways. That's one of the problems with the word. I wrote a sort of follow-up to that book that actually was kind of a politics for the Anthropocene. I didn't use the word in it at all. I think it's one of those ladders that you throw away. Yeah. Well, then there's this, of course, this land is our land, the struggle for a new commonwealth. We've got the meaning of property, freedom, community, and the legal imagination. And being America, liberty, commerce, and violence in an American world. And I think the book that kind of got you started was this one, For Common Things, which I remember coming out, I guess, maybe 20 years ago. 99. Yeah, a long time ago. So... It was a millennium ago in some sense. Welcome, Jed. Thanks a lot. I mean, there's a lot of places we could start. And I think I want to start with this idea of nature. I mean, you teach environmental law, property law, and so forth. And I remember when I took classes in political philosophy, I had a professor who said that every political philosophy has to have a theory of nature and man's relationship to nature. And you talk about kind of the American political philosophy or the American political culture, which of course shapes its legal regime. And you say that, well, you know, we actually have maybe four different conceptions of nature, right? Four different ways in which we imagine man's relationship to nature and different people manifest them in different ways. You say that you can identify with all four of these visions and kind of carry them around with you. But depending on which vision comes to the fore, it kind of influences what laws we have, which govern our relationship to nature. And the one I'm most familiar with, of course, is this liberal tradition, right? Where man is all about conquering fortuna, right? And John Locke is probably the most eloquent articulator of this vision. And in the book, After Nature, you quote de Tocqueville. And de Tocqueville has this wonderful story about when he went to Detroit, I guess it was, where he met the prototypical American, right? This person who is, I guess, devoid of terroir, right? Who's going out and clearing the forest and just domesticating and taming nature. And that's the vision I think that is almost the canonical vision of the American and their relationship to nature, just sweeping away the natives and sweeping away the forest and creating a nice little homestead where nature is domesticated. So I guess I want to talk about the four different visions, but that vision, I think, is the one that people tend to think of first, and those other visions are sort of struggling with that vision and competing with that vision. How has that vision shaped our legal culture? That's great. Thank you. So just as you say, I think the key to this project of trying to unearth different forms of environmental imagination, as I talk about it in the book, different ways of understanding where we fit into the world and what we might owe to it and what would it would mean for us to get right 
was that they re- they do these four different visions map across different parts of our legal regime. And I would say maybe just a, a, just before jumping in, a tiny addition, not even qualification to what you said, there are definitely even more than four kind of ways of experiencing and relating to the natural world that exist in the broad shape of American life. I mean, especially if we were to try to take account of the variety of indigenous ways of relating that continue to have a life and have their own kinds of futures. But these are four that are really embodied in legal regimes. So they're a way of trying to understand how environmental imagination has been very practical in lending a shape to the law's world-making activity. So this providential vision that you were talking about, and rightly associating with John Locke and that amazing image from Tocqueville as well, the legal life of that picture is the dominant project of the first hundred years of federal law, which is creating an empire of private property across the continent. The other person Tocqueville met in Detroit was the commissioner of the local land office. Kind of beautifully, Tocqueville and his traveling companion wanted to go see wilderness, but the guy found this baffling. He wouldn't direct them there. He was like, there's some good land over here. You might want to, he assumed they were speculators. You might want to go look at this acreage. And as Tocqueville said, we were forced to maneuver. We had to go the opposite of the way he told us to go in order to see some wilderness. So we all kind of know about the Homestead Act, but the record of land laws is really just extraordinary. It's more than a century of giving land to people, not only in return for pay, but so many different ways of transforming the landscape could qualify you to take title to it. Draining wetlands, irrigating drylands, cutting down forests, planting forests, digging minerals, hauling stone in some cases. I mean, it really is like a panorama of ways of performing that job, that Lockean exchange where you mix your labor with land. And of course, unlike in Locke's story, there was a big state behind it that was making it happen. You know, in some ways, this is a story that's probably best or canonically told in Willard Hurst's great history of 19th century American law as a developmental project. What I try to do in After Nature is really describe the interaction between a kind of ideological and even theological picture of how this is the human mission in the world and how that human mission becomes a certain version of the American national mission that is then very much part of the life of the developmental legal regime. And it persists today. There are very few ways you can get private property out of the federal government, but ideologically, it's very powerful. What's interesting is if you couldn't go and say, I want my 160 acres and I'm just going to leave it as wilderness. I mean, they say, all right, well, then, you know, you don't get that land. If someone comes along and takes down those trees, then it's going to belong to them. Exactly. Wilderness is the anathema to this whole worldview. Just what you said, just like Tocqueville, you would be someone who didn't get it. You wouldn't get it conceptually and you wouldn't get the land. Yeah, I remember visiting my, I have a distant ancestor who got a thousand acres on the Ohio River 
right, in Ohio. Name was Israel Putnam, famous general. And so I went out to visit one of the last remaining descendants of Israel Putnam, who is still in possession of that land. And it seemed like the idea of granting these small parcels and prohibiting corporate ownership, which a lot of the states did, was a conscious plan to create sort of the citizen farmer to prevent any kind of real concentration of of economic power. I mean, it was a vision of what it was to be the prototypical American, right? Which Jefferson had as this agrarian individual, right? Yes. I mean, that's right. It was compromised in the doing right from the start by a thousand tricks of speculators to aggregate land claims. And then, of course, by railroad giveaways after the Civil War, huge, huge gifts to the railroads. Not to say that that isn't like defensible on a certain Whiggish understanding of infrastructure. It's actually exactly the same logic as the IRA and its energy transition investment. But you're getting into a very different political economy when you're giving scores of millions of acres to the railroads. But that idea that you're trying to create a society of people, at least the ones who are eligible for these acquisitions, who have a place where they can stand and face each other, you know, look each other in the eye, that's definitely part of the idea. It's a Republican providential sort of idea of how we fit into nature. Well, there was this concurrent vision you talk about when the pilgrims arrived, right, where nature It's not necessarily just this thing to be conquered, but it was this intimidating and scary thing, right? Yeah, it was full of portents. It was full of signs that you were individually or as a community not right with God. It's amazing to read the pilgrim journals and just see how many signs are taken to be there. When a boat overturns an ice, when you hear a wolf, when a tree falls on someone who's cutting it down and kills them, which is a terrible way to go. It always meant something. In a way, I think you have to imagine that Americans weren't really able to believe in the Lockean conception until they had decisively achieved the upper hand over the natural world and also the upper hand over the indigenous population. And at that point, the idea that the world was made for a certain kind of settlement and use becomes really one that people can hold, you know, and live in. And before that time, it's much too, the contest is much too close and things are much too likely to get the upper hand over you at any time for the meaning to be all on your side. But you also, when you talk about, I mean, Thomas Jefferson, right, had this vision of agrarian America, but he was also, right, by supporting Lewis and Clark, right, he also had this idea of the beautiful and the sublime. And I don't know whether he got that from Burke, right? <laughs> in his famous book, or you know, whether that was just a common motif at that time. Yeah. I wonder whether Jefferson would have read Burke or would have held it against him too much, his view of the French Revolution. I would love to know. I mean, one, I probably should know. But you're so it's absolutely right that there is from the late 18th century and famously present in figures like Edmund Burke and his role as an aesthetic theorist and in Wordsworth's poetry and in lots of less-remembered versions as well, including an early American 
Republican poet called Philip Frenot, who's really fun to read and his accounts of the big outdoors and what it means for the possibility of an American spirit. And he's even really interested in the possibility of a merger of what he sees as sort of indigenous and settler spirit already. Sorry, the sentence is sort of running backward. What is there in all of this? There is this very different way of seeing nature, which is as a spiritual source, as a way of connecting us with a meaning that goes beyond and is in a way above our practical and material projects and is really has a kind of religious significance, whether that's understood theologically or in a romantic register that kind of replaces religion traditionally understood with aesthetic experience and some sort of mystical intuition of a sort of world soul. And that idea, just as you say, it's present in what Lewis and Clark are mapping when they go out west. So, of course, they talk about resources and navigable rivers and stuff, but they also have this precise picture of the places they encounter that are beautiful, which means like gently inviting and serving to the eye, and you feel like it could be a sort of home for you forever. And the sublime, places that are scary and indifferent to you and maybe dangerous, like rapids and cliffs and like hot springs that are too hot to go into, geysers. Imagine the first time you saw a geyser before like Yogi Berra, like the first time people set eyes on geysers. It's terrifying. (laughs) The earth is just spitting out steam that's hot enough to burn you. So anyway, they were also very interested in those aesthetic qualities of the land. But addressing those aesthetic qualities didn't really become a legal agenda and political agenda until the later part of the 19th century. And in the book, I trace that to the advocacy of the Sierra Club and some of its successor organizations, which turned the spiritual idea of nature into a political program for public lands management and generated a lot of statutes that are still extremely, not only on the books, but extremely relevant, like the National Parks Organic Act and the creation statutes or legislative acts for each of the national parks. And ultimately, in its sort of second generation, the Wilderness Act of 1964, which is responsible for setting aside at this point more than 110 million acres permanently preserved from any kind of development. But it seemed like that initiative, it was kind of like a zoning initiative, right? Where we're going to set aside some land, which is going to remain in its natural state. And then the rest of the land is going to be the land that humans conquer. And so it really wasn't about kind of integrating these things, but rather segregating them. That's totally right. And that means that although there were really strong objections to the first parks, for example, that were really in the language of this is not what man is supposed to do with nature. This is a waste. The Parks Acts, for example, didn't change the legal or practical or spiritual nature of all of the farming and settling and building activity that was going on everywhere else. That change really had to wait for the wave of environmental statutes in the 1970s, which for lack of a better word, I call the ecological generation or vision of the natural world, because it is centered on the idea, the reality of everything being incorrigibly interconnected, so that not least just segregating the continent 
doesn't solve your problems because all the waterways are linked and all the air is linked. And those are really the first statutes that, in a way, turn back on and extensively regulate the use of the natural world on those vast tracts of private property that were created in the first generation. It's what the Clean Water Act does, the Clean Air Act, the Endangered Species Act. So this is a really significant practical extension of jurisdiction for environmental concerns then. And, and no wonder it's been fought over ever since. Yeah. I mean, when we think about, you talked a little bit about attempts to create some kind of utilitarian argument around the preservation of nature, right? So if we're preserving nature for the benefit of humans, right? So that they can go there and have these mystical experiences. But of course, the more people who go there, the less likely it is that you're going to have this mystical experience. I remember I went and hiked to the Appalachian Trail and I started off in Harbors Ferry in March and went south instead of going north. And so for the first month or so, you know, we were the only ones on the trail. And then as we started getting down towards Tennessee and so forth, all of a sudden it became extremely crowded. <laughs> and it was really more of a social thing. I probably had more social interactions on the Appalachian Trail than I did in a typical day in, in a city. So, I mean, how do you manage that tension? Because at some point, if you limit access, then it becomes an elite pursuit. And this made me think of, you know, John Evelyn, who was, I guess, in some ways, the inspiration for some of the more appreciative of nature movements. But, you know, he was essentially a forester, right? And his job was to preserve the hunting terrain for the king, right? Which is really an elite project, right? Yeah. So there's always been this intense class aspect to environmental politics and lawmaking. You see it in the fights in the Western public lands today between local populists who want to take ORVs onto the land and hunt and will actually stage these big acts of civil disobedience where they just roll onto public lands with big tires and not infrequently big guns, legal big guns, and just kind of show that they think the land is theirs. And on the other hand, the people who want the land to be wilderness want all of those activities not to be there. And often those latter folks are well, they're less likely to be rooted in the local community and the local kind of extractive and productive industries, more likely to be advocates from elsewhere. So what to do? I mean, it's a real conflict. And I think a feature, that is to say, I don't think there's a formula. It's a real feature of public lands politics that it's an explicit, ongoing, ultimately somewhat zero-sum clash between different agendas for the same acres. And you can keep zoning to some extent, and that's effectively what we've done. But there are lots of flashpoints, and I think, that, I think there will just continue to be. I mean, there's a kind of deeper point, or maybe just more abstract point. There's this great moment in one of John Muir's books of Park's advocacy, where he begins by saying, you know, if any of us were as good as Thoreau, we would understand that really you can just look at a patch of grass outside your house and get it. Like the whole world is in there. But you know, most of us are cruder than that. And we need Yosemite to get the point across. Like a huge geological exclamation point. So I love Yosemite, but I'm sympathetic to the idea that if you're really drawn to the kind of spiritual aspect of connecting to the natural world, you ought to be 
working on that in much more modest places as well. And I think that relaxes the tension because it means you don't have to fly to California. And if you have the means to do it, and if you don't have the means to go to, to fly to California this year, that doesn't mean that you can't encounter like deep nature. So there are ways of shifting how we mean it and how we do it that relax some of the tension that you're rightly pointing to. Yeah. I mean, I think most people are surprised when they find out where Thoreau was. I mean, it really wasn't, (laughs) he wasn't out in the middle of nowhere. I mean, he was pretty close to town. And so here where I am in Berkeley, I have the city of Berkeley on one side and I have the fire trails on the other side. And so it's very easy for me to access at least some version of nature. But of course that requires relatively low level of density. And, you know, there's a lot of controversy here in Berkeley over density of housing and housing shortages. And the folks who in the neighborhood where I live, I mean, John Muir and all of his fellow Sierra Club members, they all lived in this neighborhood. And of course, we all want to keep it that way. But keeping it that way means basically keeping people out. I'm pretty sympathetic to the general view that we just need to be able to build more housing and that a certain kind of like complacent preservationism that has some affinities with Muir, if not with the true Thoreau, then maybe with Thoreau as he's remembered, can be cover for not doing it, for not making that possible. I mean, one of the great things in Thoreau is precisely that he's not really a wilderness guy. He is, on his own terms, a wildness guy, and he thinks wildness is to be found in lots of places, including where they drove the railroad line through within sight of Walden Pond and opened up a cross-section of the earth, and he can go and watch that dirt melt in the spring, which he writes about in his most ecstatic chapter of the book, Spring, and one of the most ecstatic scenes in it, where nature really carries him away is not only looking at the pond, not even most of all looking at the pond, let alone a tree somewhere, but it's looking at this railroad cut and thinking about what it means that the earth is like moving and coming alive again in the spring melt there where it's been damaged. So I think of Thoreau as actually kind of a great person to think with when you're trying to think about how to relate to a damaged and constrained earth. And he's very open about that, although he's sort of misremembered. People imagine that he was a wilderness guy, and then they read the evidence in the book, and they're like, he was a hypocrite, he wasn't a wilderness guy. But actually, the book was not about being a wilderness guy. Well, towards the end of the book, I mean, you talked about how I think a lot of folks in the ecological movement today have sort of a greater appreciation of the agricultural landscape, particularly if it's well-managed. And I remember one time just going through the Shenandoah Valley one time and just being awestruck by how beautiful it was. Of course, it was all farmed land. And yet there are people who, like John Muir, I mean, they would find that to be sort of an unattractive landscape. You don't want to see the farmer. (laughs) The farmer kind of ruins the whole picture. Totally. Both Muir and Emerson, in a way, said that about farmers on the land. And maybe Emerson meant something else. I'm not totally sure. But Muir certainly thought you had to get the shepherds out of Yosemite. They kind of disgusted him. Ironically, Muir was a truck farmer in his middle career, among other things, before he made it as a writer. But he never wrote about that. Yeah, it's a. this is really an American problem 
We think that the way to think about getting out of doors is only to create a big, wild or pseudo wild outdoors. Whereas, you know, if you go walking in the UK, for example, the politics there is about access to walking trails that cut through agricultural lands and estate lands. And what you want is to be able to get out into a substantially working landscape and observe it and be part of it, which is a different and in some ways more authentically thorough-spirited kind of approach. Well, I mean, today's world, we think about, I think you talk about Michael Pollan and a bunch of other folks today who are promoting a certain vision of farming that sort of strikes a balance, right? Where we're getting value out of the land, but we're also doing it in a way that is more sustainable. And I guess this idea of sustainability, I guess they didn't use the term, but it's really around the time of Roosevelt, right? And the progressives, where this vision of what we might call sustainability kind of came into the picture. So I was wondering if you could talk a bit about that. And I think it's also tied up with this notion of the end of the frontier, right? So, you know, Frederick Turner's famous frontier hypothesis, and I didn't realize how, to the extent to which that was really based on Hegel, right? You, you talk about that. I never made that connection between Hegel and Turner. Yeah. So gosh, several things in here. So yeah, Hegel says in, I think, the lectures on the philosophy of history, introductory lectures, that Americans won't have history until they run out of frontier. Because basically history, in his sense, starts when people have to turn and face one another and have a politics in the face of constraint. And he thinks the frontier has been a way of evading that politics. It's a- and you know, by the way, it's what's interesting is that the labor mobility in the United States has kind of fallen off a cliff. It's lower now than it ever has been in our history. And I always wondered the extent to which the difficulties that we're having are related in part to that. I always wonder why don't people who are in, say, Ohio, lost their job in the air conditioner factory, why don't they move out to California the way the Okies did, right, when the, the land was devastated? We don't see that nearly to the same extent, right? I mean, if you see massive influx of people from Guatemala, but you don't see a massive influx of people from, you know, from Ohio here to California. I get so quickly on that. Surely, I mean, you've probably thought about it more than I have, but part of what's going on must be that people from Ohio can't afford to move to California, at least not in a way that would feel well, consistent with how they think a like adequate living situation would have to be. It's so expensive to move to California. And yeah, I mean, it could be that it's not bad enough, right? I mean, because the folks from Guatemala will come here and work in menial jobs. And within a few years, they own their own contracting company and then have employees. And you do see this progression take place. And, you know, I saw the same thing with the Okies, right? I mean, they would come out and have terrible working conditions, at least initially. They were climate refugees. Yeah. And I think, I mean, I don't think we want to be creating conditions that make more and more people think of themselves as refugees, if that's what it kind of takes to dislodge you. And it doesn't surprise me that people who don't have either a fancy degree or a tech degree don't think of California as a land of opportunity now. Why don't you show up and get an entry-level job and pay $3,000 a month for a grant and drive an hour and a half to get like that? It sounds hard. It sounds like 
you might stay in Dayton. Right. What it means is that the frontier is continuing to close, right? It's even more closed now than it was at the time when Frederick Turner was writing. That's very much right. And actually, it's intensified our politics in exactly the sense that regions deindustrialize and people who've been, as it were, deindustrialized stay. And there's a politics in those regions of frustration and disappointment and alienation, which is quite understandable. But people are sort of caught facing one another, not, as you say, like moving to a different situation. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's a good observation. So you were touching on the fourth form of environmental lawmaking and imagination that we haven't really talked about, what I call in the book, the conservationist imagination. And it is, it's also something you could call the administrative or the managerial imagination. It's really a vision of the natural world for the big state and for the incipiently administrative state. So it comes in, as you said, with TR and the progressives, or that's sort of its epitome, the epitome of its development, though it's sort of been coming on for a few decades. And it really starts in the recognition that the project of continental settlement is not working out perfectly as an ecological and economic matter, that forests get stripped bare. And sometimes when forests get stripped bare, they don't grow back. And sometimes there's runaway erosion. And sometimes the erosion hogs up the rivers downstream so that you can't irrigate. And when you can't irrigate, the deserts downstream are also done for as agricultural lands. And so a a bunch of observations that like different parts of the settlement project are working out poorly and producing ecological refugees, like in the enormous drought of the 1880s that sent tens of thousands of settlers out of the area of the High Plains that's just west of the 100th Meridian, which was the first, really the first big episode of settler Anglo environmental refugeeism in the country's history. The thought arises there has to be a solution, and the solution is going to be to manage these big landscape scale systems that don't respond well to private extraction and maximization, like forests and watersheds. We're going to do that with a utilitarian public interested government. We're going to hold on to big tracts of forest and also exercise the like ongoing federal jurisdiction over navigable waters to create a kind of administered landscape that the theory goes is going to be administered in the public interest. So that's where the national forests come from, most of all. It's also where the natural world becomes the epitome of a much bigger worldview in that period, a certain version of progressivism that sees everything as a resource to be managed for social maximization, whether it's the factory system or the education system or human fertility. In that respect, it actually backs into eugenics in a really eerie way. It turns out the architects of conservation theory were in several cases really prominent and enthusiastic eugenicists as well. And I don't think it was Random and, and imperialists too, right? Oh, total imperialists, because imperialism, in their view, is also an exercise of national power to induce progress or at least avoid degeneration in places that need to be managed. And essentially, they regard, they don't think of themselves in their terms as racist, but in our terms, they certainly are. I mean, they regard a bunch of non white and indigenous populations 
essentially as objects of administered development. And this is the kind of the theory of the Philippines, for example. And when the great advocate, the big advocates of American empire on the Philippines talk about why this makes sense as an extension of the national project, the language and the imagery and the explicit rationales are all just extensions of how they've been talking about why we need national forests and why we need to husband the gene stock at home and the whole picture of a world to be managed and maximized for a certain idea of progress. But I mean, I think the idea was that the common law isn't going to solve the problem, right? I mean, there are these externalities across individuals, but also kind of these intertemporal externalities. And for that, you need some kind of technocratic solution. And that, that's really, I mean, all of the technocratic solutions, whether we're talking about public health initiatives or clean air, clean water initiatives, I mean, they all seem to flow from this vision of nature, right? That's exactly right. And so in thinking about it, we have to sort of hold on to two aspects of it. One is that it was involved in a lot of sort of feverish craziness. And the other is that at its core, it involved sound and imperative understanding of scale and complexity in natural phenomena. And that exactly, as you say, there are things that you can't manage on the scale or with the terms of the common law, which had been the predominant legal model for kind of governing the landscape up to that point. But it's also, I think, in many ways, profoundly anti-democratic, right? I mean, you quote H.L. Mencken, who said that Teddy Roosevelt loved the government, but he didn't love the democracy, right? It has affinities with anti-democracy, for sure. It needn't be intrinsically. It's certainly anti-populist. It's certainly expert. And it basically says that the farmer's experience of his own land and his intuitions about his own land may not be the best source of insight, at least sort of raw and untutored about what we ought to do with it. So it's anti-populist in those ways. It's definitely possible for a democracy to affirm a managerial project, but it brings us up to the whole, the, the difficulty of uh, the relationship between expertise and democracy, administration and democracy that has not gone away since then, for sure. Well, I mean, it brings us to the other book, the most recent book, Two Cheers for Politics. And I think you say that we're living in a moment which is in many ways anti-political, uh, but there's different ways that you can be anti-political. Uh, so, and one of them is this sort of belief in technocracy, right? That the experts can sort of solve problems, right? That somehow, whether it's environmental economics or some other area of science, that science somehow offers answers to these questions without any need to have political debates. I was wondering if you could talk about the two different types of anti-politics. Yeah, totally. So in a way, the book begins from the observation that our political moment feels and is really paradoxical in that it's extremely politically energized, but the mobilization often feels connected much more with fear and despair around politics than any real sense that it's a constructive or hopeful activity. So we're very political, but we're 
very obviously this we is big and crude, but I mean, inviting people to recognize some part of their own experience and observation in it. But we are also very anxious about and diverse to it. And let's only say a little more about that and then come to the concept of anti-politics, which you're asking about. So I think you can see this in the a cup and two statistics from the last presidential election. Highest turnout since 1900. Amazing. But almost 90% of the supporters of each of the major candidates said that if the other guy won, they believed lasting damage would be done to the country and that it might not be the same country afterward. So there, there were two other statistics that you mentioned, which I found interesting. One was that we have a really low amount of faith in government as a solution, but we have a really high level of expectations as to what we expect the government to do. And I'm wondering if those are accidental or is there some kind of causal relationship there? Well, that's a good question. What's your thought about that question? I'm not sure that I immediately have an interesting one, but I feel that I should. I bet you do. I mean, one would think that the more you expect from any institution, the more likely it is that you're going to be disappointed <laughs> in what they do. I mean, if you think about the Swiss, right? I mean, the Swiss, most of them don't even know who <laughs> is running their country, right, in the background. They don't necessarily expect it to solve all their problems, the confederational government, but they also have a great deal of faith that it will kind of succeed in whatever it undertakes. Yeah. So that is certainly like one way of understanding it would be Americans have a lot of unrealistic expectations of the federal government. So they're constantly disappointed. I guess if we wanted to figure out whether that accounted for the collapse in expressed confidence in the federal government since 1973, which is when they started asking people, how much confidence do you have that national government will do the right thing? I was something like two thirds of people in 73, which was not a good time to start <laughs> asking this question. Everything seemed to be falling apart. Do you know if that number differs depending on party, right? So if your party is in control, do you have more faith or is it completely insensitive to that? That's a great question. I know that all of the institutionally specific questions, which are like subsets of this Congress, the presidency, the Supreme Court, they move. I've, I haven't had someone run these numbers, but just looking at the graphs, they move among partisans with control of in the kind of partisan salient surveillance of the institutions in the way you would think. So that would suggest if you sort of, as a matter of composition, that probably the same is true of the federal government per se, but that's a little conjectural. But it's down to something like 22%. Now that's off the top of my head, but I believe it's right. So did people expect much less of the federal government in 73? That doesn't seem right. This was a time when certainly observers like Sam Huntington in this 1975 classic study for the Trilateral Commission called The Crisis of Democracy, it's an early use of the term, thought that the whole era was characterized by tremendous inflation of political demands for spending, demands for price controls, demands for distributional investment. And you know other observers like Lewis Powell, who would soon be on the Supreme Court, said, in effect, the kind of the socialists are 
running away with American politics and we have to find a way to hold them back. So it wasn't like a time of relatively quiescent expectations. So I definitely get the mood read, like maybe we're disappointed because we're asking too much. I'm not sure in terms of how it tracks out. I'm inclined to see it as having some affinity instead with another pair of developments, the collapse of interpersonal trust. People are much less likely, and especially younger people are much less likely than older people to say than everyone was in the past, that they basically expect other people to do the right thing. People are much more likely to say you can't really trust anybody. I tend to think that interpersonal trust, which by the way is it's kind of an abstraction or it's kind of about a phantasm. Like it's not clear how people it's not clear that it translates to how people regard their neighbors, for example, or their coworkers. It seems like in our concrete lives we're still much as we were but in our idea of one another, we're much more paranoid. And to trust in politics is partly to trust the big mass of everybody else to be reasonably fair in how they consider your interests against theirs and in how the decisions they take play out for you. So I think that collapse and are to come back to the second statistic about the 2020 election, everyone thinking that if the other side wins, it's all over, are really fierce, negative, affective, partisan polarization seem to me like they probably combine to, to account for a certain amount of the difference between 73 and today in terms of the real despair of government. We haven't talked about anti-politics properly. I could do that, but I also feel like I've been talking at your head for a minute. So No, I do want to talk about that. And then ultimately, I'd like to tie it back to sort of our approach to the environmental issues of our day, because it does seem as if many people that I speak to have given up on the government as the solution to some of these problems, right? Particularly, you know, I'm in, in the business school and everyone talks about ESG, right? Everyone talks about corporations being the solution, right? Somehow being motivated to take action, which will have some impact. And I guess a lot of this is really about virtue, right? It's like a type of virtue ethics, but in a way that's sort of giving up on the political process. Yeah. Okay. So to, so to tie it back, I'll just quickly give a definition of the term that you introduced a few minutes ago, anti-politics. Let's say that it's a way of describing an issue that says the nature of this problem, if you see it clearly, is that it's one that's not susceptible to political decision-making. Either there's only one right answer, or it's the kind of question that you couldn't possibly expect political institutions to reckon with. So leave it to us, guys, whoever we are. And I think there have been a couple of predominant forms of anti-politics in American political life that may seem paradoxical, but establishing an anti-politics is always partly a form of politics because you're trying to sort of get control of a policy area and a discourse around it. One is economics of a kind that he's pardon the term, but we can 
call neoliberalism just for the sake of fixing ideas and moving. If we can come back to it or move on, I don't mean anything too contentious by saying it. And the other has actually been a certain form of constitutionalism, I think, that has understood the structure of American government at its sort of basic level as frozen in the language of a basically unamendable constitution and has thought of um, re-engaging constitutional questions in a political fashion as like the peak of your responsibility, like crazy citizen sheriff, tri-corner hat kind of stuff. Both of these ideas have actually lost a lot of ground recently. And in particular, for a bunch of reasons, they've lost ground among the kinds of in the circles that we tend to run in as professors. I'm not entirely sure where that leaves us, actually. Maybe that's something that we could talk about. So environmental politics has been a candidate for economic technocracy from the beginning, partly because, as you like said perfectly, talking about the early utilitarian conservation movement, the economic analysis of environmental crises is really quite trenchant. Like externalities does tell you a lot about why we keep getting ourselves into such deep trouble. Okay, so if we think about environmental economics, right? I mean, I think you point out that, you know, environmental economics is kind of the, there's a dominant discourse, at least among technocrats, which says, look, all we need to do is put prices on everything and we'll get much better results than we'll get with sort of command and control. And I think there's a consensus around that. Of course, the prices, how we set the prices, right? I mean, that that's ultimately a political decision, right? Because you have to agree on, well, what is the harm? And it's not something that is just self-evident. You have to figure that out. But even though, I mean, you talk about that as sort of the dominant way of thinking about it, we don't see it in practice, right? I mean, it's been almost impossible to get through anything like a, a carbon tax. And so imposing that would be, I guess, in some ways, anti-democratic because it doesn't seem like there's much appetite for it. I mean, we look at the yellow jacket movement. Macron actually tried to put in place something like a carbon tax, and it was essentially defeated by a mass popular movement. Yes. So would it be anti-democratic? I mean, it would depend how you, of course, it would depend on how it came about. But there's no question that in the current political configuration, carbon pricing has been a loser. I mean, a gas tax at the pump is a really bad way to do it politically. And I think it highlights a general kind of paradox for people like me who have wanted to see a more explicit politics that acknowledges the distributional and like fundamental value implications in environmental policymaking, which is that when you politicize the economy, the government owns the economy in the political sense of being accountable for it. And that makes it actually much harder to change things than if you have recourse to a brooding omnipresence called the economy. There's a line in Bruce Springsteen's The River where he says, lately there ain't been much work on account of the economy. Like work is what people do and the economy is what happens to them. And once the economy itself is up for grabs, it's actually a lot harder to politically to make 
to make basic revisions. And I think you see this as well in the, not just the Yellow Jackets, which is a great example, but also the massive farmer party mobilization in Belgium right now against the attempt to ramp down carbon emissions by changing ag practices fundamentally. It's explicitly political. It's not like the structural changes that basically destroyed family farming in the U.S. over 60 years, even though those also had, of course, a a politics and policy decisions behind them. But it's so much on the face of it. This is what the state is telling you to do that people are able to go out and push back against it. So that's a medium-sized observation about how actually the thing that I have wanted turns out to be extremely hard to do and extremely hard to do for reasons that would not be surprising to a more traditional kind of student of politics. That said, I think at the same time, to your point, the effort to just do carbon pricing because it fit with a certain idea, a certain mode of analysis that led to a picture of optimal policy rationality, which was like a mode that had its own integrity and great force, was a total loser. And what was not a loser by a hair was an industrial policy version of big spending and the IRA that is quite explicit about trying to build and keep constituencies through big targeted investments that, as you know, are intended to be not picking winners or at least not at the sort of firm level, but at the broadest kind of technological level, whether that will work out is obviously one of the biggest questions of the century so far, and we don't know. But that is at least an instance of the whole character of environmental politics changing from a kind of technocratic anti-politics to a kind of distributional political economy where it's fully acknowledged that what we're doing is a kind of contested collective decision to kick the course of development off in a different direction. And that actually looks a lot more in some ways in its broad form, like what we did in the 19th century or the early 20th century, which is to say, we've got a big aircraft carrier to turn, and we need to explain why we're kicking the rudder around. If that's what you do with an aircraft carrier, (laughs) you probably don't have rudders. So if we wanted to reinvigorate a conversation around, say, global warming, right? What do we need to do? I mean, you talk a bit about sort of the Rachel Carson and Silent Spring, and this had a huge impact on the politics, but it was this pollution model, right? And so you say carbon is, doesn't fit neatly into that kind of pollution model, right? So a lot of advocates of global warming policies, they'll put the polar bears you know, at front and center, which is in a way, it's a little bit disingenuous, right? I mean, it turns out actually, I found out that the polar bear population is increasing, not decreasing. And you could see how cynics might discover that and that would kind of undermine the entire argument. So how can you come up with a persuasive set of norms and beliefs that can enter into the political conversation to move the needle? So I do think that with this summer, of storms and fires, we have sort of a mark of what one part of the politics just is going to be, which is an intense and probably scientifically merited politicization of the weather and of all the kinds of vulnerability that natural disaster brings. I think it's probably not going to be 
the polar bears going forward, which was definitely, like you say, it, a bid to recapitulate the environmental appeals of the early 70s, at least some of them. The environmental appeals of the early 70s also had a lot of the flavor of saying that the world might die. People literally, the New York Times said the world may become uninhabitable. That kind of language is back. And so I think there's going to be a huge element of fear, which there has often been before actually in successful eras of environmental mobilization. There is some, there's a crisis to try to avert or at least mitigate what there has also been. I think in each successful episode of environmental change has been a more positive vision, something to draw toward. And what that looks like now is in some ways, I think, Greg, to be honest, still elusive. I think there are a lot of bids for it. There are big attempts to imagine a whole different way of life that would involve less growth as a social idea. That strikes me as a political non-starter for at least the coming decades, at least other than among the very wealthy. I think you need a significant amount of widely shared security for that even to be on the table. And it does raise questions about whether a less frightening and vulnerable social world would make us perhaps a little more open to that kind of idea. But to a certain extent, it really does increasingly look like what we're talking about is a lot of going big on technological ways to live how we're already living on different energy terms, on different resource terms. And I think what the IRA is betting is that the state can actually do a lot to make that possible and maybe necessary to accelerate the transition even though a lot of what it's going to be ultimately doing is topping off and dealing in and inducing massive private investment. So it might be that this is going to be a crisis in which the environmental imagination and the way I've written about it in the past is actually not the thing that's front and center. And it's going to be politics of a different kind, in part because the environmental crisis is so encompassing now that it really does touch everything we do in our economy and all the ways that we live. And I don't think anyone would want to make averting the climate crisis hang on our ability or willingness to change all of those things at once. In some ways, the environmental question it finally refuses to be siloed, and it may lose some of its distinctiveness. It may even be a kind of residual habit, but a sort of category error to think of climate as a an environmental problem rather than an everything problem. Well, one last question. I couldn't not ask you this question, and that has to do with standing. So you did have some comments on kind of the expansion of the scope of standing. Will the day come when we will have our primates as plaintiffs, whales as plaintiffs, and maybe even trees as plaintiffs? If we do... And I admit that here I'm kind of a skeptic. I don't think it'll make much difference. Not as much as people want to imagine. I cut myself off earlier when I was saying that I think you see a little bit of an old anti-politics fantasy that somehow if we get in front of the right judge, that judge will save us from our problems and make things better. 
in some of the climate litigation. I know people are sophisticated and there are other things they're trying to do with it, like public relations and discovery. But taken at its core on its own terms, the idea that we're going to come back to the example of, the, of non-human standing, non-human plaintiffs, which is slightly different from the climate litigation, but I think is in the same headspace. Back when they were talking about non-human plaintiffs in 73 in Sierra Club v. Morton, they were already really talking about whether certain kinds of advocates would be allowed to come into court articulating the alleged perspective of nature. And because the character of law is that you can only have it within a shared language, and we have no linguistic relationship to the non-human, we only have linguistic speculation about what it wants or needs, I think the question of standing is always actually a question about which human or which organization gets to adopt for a little while the charisma of allegedly speaking for the non-human. But if we want to talk about the rights of nature, we know how to do that legally. The Endangered Species Act does it in a way, the Wilderness Act does it in a way. And I don't actually think that pretending that nature is in the courtroom will, in technical legal terms, change anything. I think what people are looking for in some ways, whether or not they know it, I would guess some do and some don't, is the revival of a more animist sense of the whole world, like a reminder that things around us really are alive and that it would be amazing if we could know something like what their experience is or what it is that is analogous somehow to experience in the life of a forest or whatever. And I think that is a very deep and rich question. I think it's not surprising that lots of people are fascinated by it right now. I hope we live to see what it does to our environmental politics. And it may be that if there is an answer to what we were talking about before, what will the kind of positive, imaginative vision of an energy transition world look like? Maybe it'll look like something like it'll have some of that spirit, like a world with room for more forms of experience and being that are not all human. But I think the standing issue is only a small and somewhat quixotic fragment of a change that actually does have the potential to be really deep and interesting. Well, Jed, thanks so much for joining me. A lot of books here. We barely scratched the surface of even just a couple of them. But the uh, latest book is Two Cheers for Politics. Also check out After Nature and to go way back in time for common things. Let's talk again soon. Look forward to it. Thank you, Greg. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast produced by University FM. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review in your favorite listening app. To listen to our other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.